Anton Hellman here for the EM Cases podcast. Now, 2017 has been another year at EM Cases that I'll be forever grateful for. I'd like to sincerely thank the entire EM Cases content team for their dedication and hard work. The team has helped bring you podcasts, the show notes, just the Nuggets emails, the Q&A Pearl of the Week, the ebooks, the quizzes, the Crit Cases blog, the Waiting to be Seen blog, the course, the Rapid Reviews videos, and the app. Thank you, team. Thanks also to all the brilliant guest experts that I've had on the podcast for their amazing insights. And thanks so much to you, the EM Cases listeners, for listening, learning, and for your helpful feedback. Keep it coming. I'd also like to thank the EM Cases Advisory Board for their wisdom, my family for their loving support, and the Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. SREMI, the incredible nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education, who've paved the road for EM cases to grow from an obscure podcast to an entire learning system for emergency medicine. That's right. 2018 will bring the EM cases learning system. Now, I won't give it all away now, but imagine bringing together all the EM cases resources, adding a searchable and customizable Q&A data bank and a way to track not only what you've learned, but how it's changed your practice over time, and serving all this up to you for free in a way that's so easy and intuitive to use that you won't even notice your brain filling up with practice-changing EM knowledge. That's the EM Cases Learning System. We're super excited about this culmination of all the EM Cases resources. All right, enough of that. On to EM Management of Intracerebral Hemorrhage. In EM, we seem to talk a heck of a lot about subarachnoid hemorrhage, like all the time. But intracerebral hemorrhage, on the other hand, doesn't really seem to get the attention that it deserves. Like Rodney Dangerfield famously said, it gets no respect. And ICH should get some respect. Why? Well, first off, ICH is twice as common as subarachnoid hemorrhage. And while hemorrhagic stroke accounts for only about 15% of all strokes, they account for up to 50% of all stroke mortality. And more than one-third of patients are dead at one week, and only one-third of survivors are functionally independent in one year. In addition, anticoagulated-associated ICH, an even worse disease, is on the rise. Now, you might be thinking that I'm making an unfair comparison because so many patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage present neurologically well, and if we can get them diagnosed early, when they have their sentinel bleed or a small subarachnoid, we could save a life. Whereas with ICH, you might be thinking, well, we can't really do anything to change outcomes. Well, I'm here to tell you it just ain't that simple. While there's no one therapy that definitively improves clinical outcomes in patients with ICH, aggressive medical care does appear to provide benefit. And there's some newer surgical procedures that hold a lot of promise. So today on EM Cases main episode 104, we delve deep into the world of brain blood. We're going to talk anticoagulation and intubation. We're going to talk blood pressure and ICP. We're going to talk seizure and fever control. We're going to talk surgery and stroke units. And we're going to answer some difficult questions. The kind that invariably have the answers that start with, well, it depends. This is the Himmel-Weingart sessions redux. So 
On this episode, we actually have a couple of bonus surprises as well. We're hoping to bring in the incredible Peter Brindley, who you might remember from his best case ever on his prepare mnemonic for airway emergencies. Peter is a neurointensivist in Edmonton, and he'll provide some commentary from the ICU perspective a little bit later in the podcast. And you might hear the wild, wonderful voice of the creator of the upcoming Pocus Pearls video series on EM cases that I'm very excited to bring you in the new year. That's right, a monthly video series of the latest and greatest in ED Pocus world, Dr. Rob Samard. Uh, you can probably guess what he's going to rant about. So without further ado, let's start the Himmel-Weingart Sessions Redux on ICH. A 75-year-old woman is brought to your ED via ambulance complaining of abrupt onset headache, nausea, right leg weakness, and difficulty walking that started about six hours ago. She has a history of hypertension and diabetes and takes hydrochlorothiazide as well as metformin. She has no neck pain or stiffness, visual or speech changes. Her GCS is 15, blood pressure 165 on 95, and her temp is borderline at 37.9 degrees Celsius. The rest of her vitals are normal, including a rapid glucose. She's lying flat on the stretcher, asking for a barf bag. So let's just start off with sort of a rapid fire, what are you thinking round? Dr. Himmel, you go first. What are sure. your thoughts on this I'm case? I'm thinking this person's got an acute neurological deficit. They came on bang, just like that, just like a stroke from God. This person's got a stroke of some sort. That's overwhelmingly the most likely diagnosis. There's always a big differential, everything from hysteria to seizures, but something comes on bang like that is almost certainly a stroke. So the first thing I'm thinking is, look at the ABCs. Is this person breathing? Is their airway protected? Are they going to die in the next couple of minutes? If they're reasonably stable, I'm thinking I got to get a fast diagnosis based on CT scan after brief examination. The purpose of the examination is to assure stability, to make sure nothing has to be done immediately, and to give me a ballpark figure out what's going on. And I'm probably going to get AccuCheck at the same time as well. Of course, I am thinking based on her uh, headache, and I think it was vomiting, or no, headache and nausea, that there's a good possibility this is a hemorrhage. But that's not reliable. Whether I'm thinking it or not, I'm doing the same thing initially. CT scan, once I'm quite certain this person is stable, at least in terms of the next five to 10 minutes. All right. And Dr. Weingart, your take on this case? Yeah. As you'd expect, I'm on the same page as Walter in terms of what clinically I feel is going on. I'm, I'm kind of scared by the nausea and desire to vomit, especially uh, you've given us deliberately the position she's lying in is flat. Uh, a lot of these patients will feel this way and have a uh, good GCS. Uh, they'll be relatively awake. And okay, fine. Maybe we'll take that patient to CT. But some of them will come in uptunded and have these same symptoms of uh, retching, burping, and it's generally a sign of increased intracranial pressure from the presumed intracranial hemorrhage. I'd very strongly consider managing the airway, even at GCSs that you wouldn't typically uh, just from ischemic stroke, simply because I don't want them to lie flat on the CT table and aspirate as they vomit. Great point. We're going to get heavy into airway a little bit later in the podcast. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about how you can differentiate a bleed versus an ischemic stroke clinically, which, as you alluded to, Dr. Himmel, isn't really quite that simple. The reason why this is important is because the management's going to be very different. You know, you'll probably call a code stroke 
And you might even forego a CT scan if you're in a community hospital, for example, uh, or in a remote community. You might just call a code stroke to let the uh, accepting stroke center do the CT there if you highly suspect that it's an ischemic stroke. You know, on the other hand, if you highly suspect that it's a bleed, then you might not call a code stroke and instead do a stat CT scan and maybe even start treating the blood pressure and anticoagulants on board if there are any, et cetera, you know, if you think that there's a high probability that, that it's a bleed. Dr. Hamill, could you just go over for our listeners, what are the kinds of things you want to look for to make yourself convinced that this is probably a bleed as opposed to an ischemic stroke? Well, you'll never be convinced, but I think you'll probably increase your pretest probability to 70 or 80 or 90%. Headache? Eh, most strokes don't have headache as a major feature. Headache makes you worry. Nausea? Most ischemic strokes do not have nausea. In fact, most of them don't really have headache as a major feature, although, of course, they can be headachey. So nausea? Big deal. Any retching? Big deal. And uh, certainly, a significant alteration level of consciousness pushes my thinking dramatically in the direction of an acute hemorrhage rather than ischemic stroke, because many people's strokes are going to be reasonably awake. They might not be conversant, obviously, but they're going to be reasonably awake. So those are the big features. In terms of the examination, it isn't necessarily that helpful unless your GCS is dramatically down. But certainly, if you've got bilateral findings, if you've got... Uh, eye findings such as third or sixth nerve palsies, if you've got dilated pupils, particularly on one side, if you've got hypertonicity, if you've got hypertonic reflexes, if you've got upgoing toes, especially bilaterally, anything bilateral is going to make me think, man, this is probably a bleed. But I would say the most important features are headache, nausea, retching, vomiting, pallor. All right. So that being said, if you're pretty convinced clinically that this is a bleed, Dr. Weingart, you had alluded to uh, managing the airway up front. What kind of things are you thinking about in terms of management early on before the patient gets to CT? Would you ever start managing the blood pressure before they get to CT, for example? Yeah, and, and this is not based on fantastic evidence. This is my own clinical practice. But I will take every one of these patients either, because at this point they're undifferentiated between ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke, I'll take them all down to 180. I think that's a very reasonable number for both groups, and therefore I'm ahead of the game if it turns out to be a TPA candidate ischemic stroke, and I'm closer to the number I'll eventually get to, and we'll talk about it in more detail, for the hemorrhagic stroke. I agree with that completely. Now, if you look at the guidelines, the American Heart Association, American Stroke Association for strokes, uh, they're going to say you can tolerate a blood pressure of 220 over even 110 initially if you're not going to use TPA. But I think what Scott said is absolutely true. Even with an ischemic stroke or pressure like that, lowering your pressure by 15%, I would say 9 to 9.99% of the time is going to be perfectly rational. So you're actually killing two birds in one stone. So I echo exactly what Scott said. As I always do, of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's assume that you've got an 80 or 90% pretest probability that this patient has a bleed. If you want to up that to closer to 100, there's some people out there who would suggest that transcranial Doppler might be able to help you differentiate a bleed from an ischemic stroke. You know, my understanding is that that transcranial Doppler is actually pretty good at detecting an MCA territory ischemic stroke which would pretty much rule out a bleed, right? The other thing that transcranial Doppler might be able to do is detect midline shift. And if you got midline shift, then you're definitely thinking more like a bleed or a mass in a patient with an abrupt onset, probably more bleed. 
There's also ocular pocus, uh, looking at the optic nerve sheath diameter and papilledema for detecting elevated ICP. What is your guys' take on using pocus? Let's say there's a delay to CT for whatever reason, or in your institution, you won't be able to get CT for at least half an hour or an hour. What's your take on using POCUS at the bedside to help increase your pretest probability that this is a bleed or decrease it so that you're convinced that it's not a bleed and it's more likely an ischemic stroke, and that way you could call a code stroke more confidently? If it's going to take you half an hour to get a CT scan, you've got my sympathy. That's going to make life very difficult. So you've stabilized the patient, and absolutely, the CT scan is down for half an hour. You have no other option. What are you going to do? Well, if you've got echo skills, I think the first thing you're going to do with Doppler is probably look at the optic nerve. That's the easiest skill to master, and it's going to tell you something right off the bat. With reasonable accuracy, is this person's intracranial pressure increased? So I think in about 30 to 60 seconds, maybe 90 seconds if you're having a hard time, with a bit of skill, you're going to at least get some sense about the intracranial pressure. If the optic nerve from outer aspect of the diameter to the other is under five millimeters, you're reasonably reassured. And if it's six millimeters or more, you're thinking intracranial hypertension for sure. So that's probably the first thing I would do. As far as transcranial dopplers go, yes, there's no question about it. If you're extremely skilled and extremely experienced, you can diagnose middle cerebral artery blood flows. You can probably see masses from lobar hemorrhages. That's for people with fantastic skills. And I would say, when should they use those skills? Yeah, if you get three or four or five minutes and you've done everything else and no CT scan available, go ahead and do it. That's hardly the standard of care right now. It's not my top priority. Although I have no problem whatsoever, particularly people whose GCS is low or going low, checking the optic nerve right off the bat. That's fast and extraordinarily helpful. And Dr. Weingart, your take? Well, you know, Walter very astutely prefaced his comments with, if the CT scanner was down, because I I think we're on the same page that if your CT scanner is not down, uh, this patient takes priority on any other patient in the hospital. And uh, even if you suspect hemorrhagic, I still get these patients to CT immediately. Uh, This transcranial domular at this point prior to CT feels very much in the category where a lot of ultrasound stuff lies, which is ultrasound masturbation. Uh, You may get some pleasure out of performing the exam, but really you've accomplished nothing in the long term. So I would get this patient to CT and then after they get back, that's where ultrasound has some role, especially in ICP assessment and things like that. All right. Well, let's see what uh, Dr. Rob Samard has to say about transcranial Doppler. Hi there, Anton Himmel and Weingart. I was asked by Anton a while back my thoughts on transcranial Dopplers and the synonym of strokes and intracranial bleeds, and it got me a little excited because this is a fun and exciting area of ultrasound that few people use. Now, I know what you're thinking out there. Is point-of-care ultrasound of the brain even a thing? I can barely do a fast, and now they're talking about point-of-care ultrasound on people's brains? How do you even see the brain through the bone? Well, believe it or not, point-of-care ultrasound, transcranial Dopplers, is a thing. Although I would describe it as something that is not readily taught at POCUS courses and not something that is widespread in its use, it does have a niche in some settings and definitely does not take the place of a CT scan or MRI. So what can you use POCUS for in the setting of strokes and ICH? Well, first, optic nurse sheath diameter can tell you about increased ICP. 
By placing the linear probe over the closed eyeball, the optic nerve can be seen in the far field. Measuring horizontally at 3 millimeters from the retina, the optic nerve sheet diameter can be determined. Although different values of normal exist, I think everyone agrees that an optic nerve sheath diameter of greater than 6 millimeters are abnormal and may indicate increased ICP. Now, there's a differential diagnosis for large optic nerve sheath diameter. These can include things like space-occupying lesions, intracranial bleeds, iatrogenic intracranial hypertension. So having a clinical context before doing this point of care ultrasound is quite important. Next, a transcranial Doppler can be useful to look at blood flow through vessels such as the MCA. By placing the probe over the temporal bone, which is thin enough to have ultrasound waves pass through, a transcranial Doppler can tell information about emboli and stenosis. By doing both B mode to look at a blood vessel, mainly the MCA, and then Doppler mode to look at blood flow velocities, which the combination of B mode and Doppler mode is known as duplex ultrasound, dates back as far as 1982, where they shown that transcranial Doppler has a role in evaluating the intracranial vessels. In fact, you can do a real-time transcranial Doppler when a patient's being given TPA and watch flow velocities improve. What a world we live in. In our center, we've also used POCUS to measure the middle of the brain on the right side and then compared the middle of the brain on the left side and have accurately predicted midline shift from a brain bleed when comparing it to a CT scan performed minutes later in our trauma patients. Finally, at our sites, in very rare circumstances, when we perform transcranial Dopplers at the bedside, we've actually seen the intracranial hemorrhage on our point-of-care ultrasound machine. The downside about point-of-care transcranial Doppler is that it's not overly accurate, and we have a very readily available imaging modality in a CT scan that's much more accurate. In fact, when you compare transcranial Doppler to CT scan, the accuracy is only about 85% for transcranial Doppler. So at this stage, it's definitely not readily used and is definitely not ready for prime time use. Is it worth throwing on an ultrasound probe while the patient is waiting for a CT scan? Well, there's never any harm with ultrasound. Keep your thermal index low. Spend as little time scanning the eye as possible and try to estimate what the CT scan is going to show. Using the ocular and transcranial Doppler presets on your POCUS machine will help provide the safest and best image. Obviously, you don't want to delay care and you want to do this while your patient's undergoing evaluation for a CT scan. Would I ever use point-of-care ultrasound to decide whether or not to call a code stroke? Never. Calling a code stroke should always remain a clinical decision. Although ultrasound is another data point, it should never be your only data point to make a major decision about a patient's care. So in conclusion, I hope I've opened your eyes a little to the wonders of of point-of-care ultrasound. I don't advocate you do a transcranial Doppler or an optic nerve sheath diameter POCUS tomorrow and make major conclusions without a CT scan of the head. With CT scans being readily available and the significant extra training required to learn how to do a Doppler ultrasound, most physicians will never perform a point-of-care transcranial Doppler. But for those POCUS enthusiasts out there, I'd advocate that if you work in a resource-rich area like I do and regularly use POCUS, that transcranial Doppler and optic nerve sheath diameter POCUS may predict the findings on the CT scan of the head. So go ahead and give it a try, assuming that you're not delaying the patient's care, and don't forget that this modality is not ready for prime time and that the CT scans and MRIs are still much more accurate in the settings of acute strokes and intracranial hemorrhages in the emergency department. 
I want to talk a little bit about the causes of intracerebral hemorrhage. Intracerebral hemorrhage is most often caused by hypertension, uh, and those ones are usually the non-lobar ones. And then there's amyloid angiopathy. Those are usually in elderly folks, and those are usually the lobar strokes. There's a whole slew of other causes. Dr. Himmel, what are the other causes that we need to know about for intracerebral hemorrhage, and why is it important to actually try and figure out what the underlying cause is in the emergency department? Yeah, so there's many causes of intracranial hemorrhage, but you've, first of all, stated the first two that are the most common. Basal ganglion strokes from hypertension and the caudate or thalamus or stuff like that or the corpus striatum. And of course, those big, ugly, lower hemorrhages in elderly people from cerebral uh, amyloid angiopathy. It happens as you get older and it's a lot of genetic input into that. So there's two other ones that are unbelievably important to think about. Number one, coagulopathy. The formerly new, but now the not so new oral anticoagulants as well as warfarin. You've got to think about that and ask about it and probably get an INR and a PTT in all your patients because it's that important because if someone's coagulopathic, a major part of treatment is correcting it. Coagulopathy, unbelievably important. So there's a couple of conditions that can certainly cause secondary bleeding. One is herpes simplex encephalitis can cause bleeding. Cerebral venous thrombosis can cause secondary bleeding, which is, of course, a secondary venous bleeding. The... the um, Sagittal sinuses and transfer sinuses that are thrombosed, cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, can cause secondary bleeding. So you've got to keep that in the back of your mind. That's important to think about because those conditions, somewhat debatably, are often treated with anticoagulation. Wow, that'll throw a wrench into things. <laughs> All right, so considering that there's this big differential diagnosis of ICH, which patients would you push for trying to get a CT with contrast in the ED. Before we, before we leave imaging, I think it's just important not to just kind of assume that this is a hypertensive bleed and go from there, that we need to kind of back up a second before you know we start uh, making these assumptions. Which patients do you think would need sort of a higher level imaging in the emergency department? Because of cerebral vein thrombosis, because of AV malformations, because sometimes people with peripheral aneurysms and subarachnoid aneurysms bleeding can mimic intracranial hemorrhage, you just really don't know. So here's my starting point. If you diagnose a intracranial hemorrhage, my starting point is they're all going to need a CTA, partly for diagnostic purposes, partly to rule out unusual causes, and partly to prognosticate the risk of ongoing bleeding. Where might I not do it? If these patients have a classical, absolutely typical basal ganglion bleed, and there is such a thing as classical, absolutely typical basal ganglion bleeds in the putamen uh, or in the thalamus or the caudate. Maybe I won't do one over there. If they've got an absolutely phenomenally typical lobar hemorrhage, maybe I won't do one there. But I phone your surgeon to tell me, you know what? You just can't be sure. Get a CTA. So I would say, where am I not push for one right off the bat or wait to get a neurosurgical opinion? probably basal ganglion hemorrhages that are absolutely typical, I might not push one for there. But the other bleeds, uh, I'm probably going to favor a CTA up front. All right, Dr. Weingart, any uh, comments about imaging in general? Yeah, I mean, I'm in the States, so we definitely have a lower threshold to be able to 
obtain CT scans at our will. Most departments have easy access. There's really no barriers. Uh, at this stage of the game, every stroke, ischemic and hemorrhagic, is getting CT, CT angiogram. And if the presumption is they're ischemic stroke, then they're getting a CT perfusion scan as well. This has made it a lot easier. It's taken some of the thinking away from this. Now, I could make arguments as to why this is justified in all hemorrhagic strokes. In addition to the ones uh, Walter has already made, I'd say any patient with a hemorrhagic stroke, I get some prognostication from that CT angiogram. If there's active bleeding, the so-called spot sign on my scan, I could say this patient's re-bleeding rate is higher. And I think something that you may not understand unless you've actually been acquainted with the neurocritical care world is the difference in survival versus death in intracranial hemorrhage is on the order of like CCs. You know, the difference between a 30 ml bleed and a 45 ml bleed, it may be the difference between life and death. So uh, having the spot sign indicating continued bleeding may very radically change this patient's prognostic situation. I echo completely what Scott says. Absolutely. Things are changing in Canada rapidly. And I think in every emergency department, we have to start talking to our radiologists. But I would say, yeah, if you think it's a bleed, the way to go right now unless there's some terrible systematic reasons that you're not allowed to do it, is a CTCTA. In fact, when I refer patients to my stroke center, and not infrequently, I send them there with no CT scan. I just see them, make a diagnosis, bang, and they're gone. Let me tell you the first thing they get other than hello. They get CT, CTA, perfusion CT, bang, 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 all done right away in a couple of minutes. There's a good argument for doing that. I think we also have to realize in Canada, and I guess certain other places, we have been exceedingly pessimistic about strokes and way more pessimistic about intracranial bleeding. I think the time for that is over. Let's move on to management. Uh, We've been talking about differential diagnosis and, and imaging. Let's get to the good stuff. So let's go back to the case. We've got our woman uh, who comes in with the headache and the nausea, showing a 30 milliliter by volume, low bar intracerebral hemorrhage. And the nurse calls you and tells you that the blood pressure is now 175 on 105. So it's increased a bit. And her son arrives telling you that she also takes 325 milligrams of aspirin daily, which wasn't on her medication list. So we've now got a higher blood pressure than on arrival and an antiplatelet agent on board and a patient with a low bar bleed. So this leads nicely into talking about managing hematoma expansion, which happens in a lot of these patients and generally means badness. So when it comes to managing ICH, we really need to think about six things. And this is what a lot of the rest of the podcast is going to be about. We need to think about blood pressure. We need to think about intracranial pressure. We need to think about coagulopathy, seizure control, fever control, and surgery. So let's start off talking about the oh-so-controversial blood pressure management for ICH. I think it's important to understand some basic pathophysiology when it comes to BP, which again is very controversial. You know, on the one hand, there's early hematoma expansion, which we think is caused by elevated blood pressure. And it's one of the big prognostic factors in ICH. So it makes sense to try and make the patient normotensive. 
On the other hand, at least theoretically, decreasing their blood pressure might worsen ischemia in the area surrounding the hematoma by decreasing blood flow to the area. Uh, Now, I understand that this concern over the zone of perihematoma ischemia is not really well substantiated when you look at CT perfusion images in patients with ICH who have their blood pressure dropped. So, Dr. Weingart, before we get into the blood pressure lowering trials in ICH, my question to you is, should we be concerned about inducing ischemia around the hematoma if we lower the patient's blood pressure in the ED? Yeah, I mean, maybe we were concerned about this a decade ago. I think that's been pretty much debunked in the clinical practice of neurointensive care. Uh, the zone of, you know, peri-infarct versus peri-hematoma ischemia probably doesn't exist in ICH like it does in stroke. Walter had alluded to the 210 to 220 that we'd keep a non-TPA candidate ischemic stroke at, and that's to uh, maximize permissive hypertension, try to increase perfusion to that zone. That do- zone does not seem to exist in ICH. So you really have no concerns about lowering the blood pressure too much from the safety perspective until you get to the region of low blood pressure where you're limiting the cerebral perfusion pressure to areas that are injurious. And that, without ICP monitoring and a patient who does have elevations, is probably in the zone of a map of 75 to 80. I get kind of concerned when I start getting around that map of 80 that maybe they've gone too far. You know, they've had overdiuresis from mannitol, for instance. Uh, Maybe we should raise their blood pressure. Uh, Until we get to that area, I'm not worried too much about this perihematoma ischemia. All right. So that's a bit about not having to worry so much about lowering the blood pressure unless it's too low. Dr. Himmel, the literature on hypertension management in head bleeds is kind of all over the place. There's the interact trials, there's the attached trials. I personally find it pretty confusing. Can you just give us the bottom line of when to treat hypertension in a patient with ICH and what target blood pressure we should be aiming for? Well, I'm going to simplify this to the point where it's causing me great internal distress, but I'll put that aside. (laughs) You know, there's two kinds of patients who have an intracranial bleed. There's the ones who are awake and the ones who are really unconscious. So let's for the moment put aside the ones who are really unconscious with GCSs of three and four and five, because with these patients, you get real problems with what their intracranial pressure is. And Scott's going to be the expert who's talking about that issue. But let's say we're talking about patients whose eyes are open or who respond to pain and whose GCSs are 15, 14, 13, down to eight or seven. I think the studies certainly suggest that lowering their pressure to the range of 1 to 40 over 80 is not harmful. We'd all agree with that. As to whether it's beneficial, depending on how rigid you want to be about primary outcomes and second outcomes, I think I would argue it's either minimally beneficial or somewhat beneficial. So here's my view, basically. Except in patients who are deeply unconscious, lower their pressure to 140 over 80. It's not going to be harmful and may be helpful. Okay. And then going back again to, let's say there's a delay to CT, how would you manage the blood pressure in this patient, 175 on 105? You're pretty convinced, let's say, that it's ICH. Would you start managing their blood pressure before they even get to CT? If in my heart I'm convinced this is an ICH, I'll treat them. If in my heart I'm convinced their INR is up, I'll treat them without any lab results. And in Canada, that basically means at the moment, labetalol. And yes, I would treat them before they go over there. Like there are some situations which in my experience are so obvious, I'm just going to go for it. Also, why do we treat hypertension in people with bleeds? We, we treat to stop ongoing bleeding. When does most of the bleeding happen after time zero? In the first three to four hours. 
When does a patient usually arrive into your department? Maybe hour two or three. Well, it's the next hour or two. It's going to make a big difference. I'm going to start treating them right away. Great. All right. And just a reminder, so we don't confuse our listeners, that we're talking about intracerebral hemorrhage. We're not talking about traumatic subdurals or epidurals because the target blood pressure for those are completely different. Well, that segues nicely into uh, the choice of antihypertensives. Sounds like in Canada, our go-to would be labetalol. If you have nicardipine available, probably nicardipine is our go-to. And of course, we don't want to lower the pressure too much. Dr. Weingart, can you just take us through the steps of, of how you'd actually manage the blood pressure with nicardipine? Sure. And uh, I think a lot of people get this wrong, much to their chagrin and their patient's misfortune. Uh, Nicardipine, to me, is the neurocritical care blood pressure agent of choice because it does not affect the inotropy of the heart. It has no cerebral vasodilation. It has no venous vasodilation of any significant amount. It's a pure arterial vasodilator. Uh, That's what I want in my neurocritical care patients. So I love this medication. The problem is the manufacturers decided on a very complicated and difficult to parse pharmacodynamically uh, loading versus maintenance regimen. And so in a patient, you need rapid control. What you're going to be doing is starting at five milligrams per hour and increasing uh, every period of time. They say 15 minutes, that's way too long. It takes like hours to get their blood pressure under control that way. So we're doing every five minutes increase by 2.5 milligrams. uh, And then people leave it there. And then they're all surprised when the patient's blood pressure is the 90 over 60 that Walter talked about, which is really deleterious to your head bleed patients. Uh, And now if you look in the manufacturer's recommendations, what they'll tell you is if you rapidly titrate up, the second you hit the blood pressure you want, you need to lower this medication down to three milligrams per hour and then restart your slow gradual titration. Now the way to think about this is the initial rapid upswing is your load. Once you've gotten them under control, you'll pull back to your maintenance strip and the maintenance strip starts at three milligrams an hour and then you work your way back up from there. If you do it that way, you will have nothing but joy with this medication. Great nuances there. And uh, Dr. Himmel, in terms of labetalol, how do you, how do you suggest loading up labetalol in these patients? Generally speaking, you can start with about a 20 milligram bolus over one to two minutes. Wait two or three or four or five minutes, see what happens and give an, And then at that point, if your pressure is really high, it said you can get 40 or you can repeat another 20. Now, I must say that's, that's perfectly reasonable, giving 20, waiting four or five minutes, give another 20 or 40 if the pressure is ridiculously high and possibly repeat that. And then eventually you're going to get onto a drip of about one to eight milligrams per minute, although the uh, drug the descriptions and the, and, the, and the drug information says one to two milligrams per minute. But I got to warn you, after pressure is not all that high, be careful. I've had the very unpleasant experience of giving someone 40 milligrams of labetalol IV and have their pressure drop to unbelievably low levels. I think 20 milligrams is a reasonable bolus to give and keep repeating it every three or four minutes. All righty. So we've talked about blood pressure. Next up is talking about coagulation problems. Now, Dr. Himmel, we've covered what to do with bleeding patients with low platelets or high INRs or patients who are taking DOACs in past episodes. I think it was 36, 37, and 89. Let's just review sort of the take-home points, uh, the key bottom lines here. So first off, how low does an ICH patient's platelet count need to be to trigger a platelet transfusion? Okay, so we're not talking about aspirin. 
and we're not talking about any other antiplatelet agents, and we're not particularly talking about ITP at this very second. So certainly, every neurosurgeon in the world would say 50,000 with intracranial bleed is low. So certainly, under 50,000, you're going to give platelets. And almost most neurosurgeons would say, if you've got intracranial bleed and your plug counts under 100,000, give platelets. So I would say with the intracranial bleed and the platelet count of under 100,000, I'm going to give one adult pool of platelets at least. And Dr. Weingart, is, is that what they're doing down in the States? Yeah, the conservative neurosurgeons is 100,000, but I think the best evidence if you talk to the blood bankers is probably the 50,000 that Walter talked about. All right. So it might be a time that you might actually want to call up your hematologist or call up your neurosurgeon. You know, that might be one of the questions you might want to ask them because it sounds like it's not 100% clear unless it's under 50,000. So that's platelets. Next is how to reverse the INR of an ICH patient who's taking warfarin. Dr. Himmel, just remind us of the steps you take. Let's say the patient's INR is three and a half. Uh, they've been on warfarin uh, for atrial fibrillation, let's say, and now they've got a uh, sizable intracranial bleed. The first thing is, if someone's got an ICH and I haven't got the INR back and they're on warfarin, I'm going to treat them. <laughs> I'm going to reverse them, even just on speculation, almost always, unless I've got some overwhelming reason not to, and I can't imagine any. And there's literature to back me up on that. So the debate about fresh frozen plasma versus prothrombin complex concentrates by and large is over. We use prothrombin complex concentrates. How much do I give? Well, if I do not know what the INR is, and there's an article on the American Journal of Emergency Medicine on this, I give 1500, 1,500 units of prothrombin complex concentrates. If I do have an INR back, depends on the INR back. There are multiple different protocols, but in Canada, the current recommendations are if your INR is 1.5 to 3, give 1,000 units of PCC. If your INR is 3 to 5, give 2,000 units of PCC. And if it's more than 5, give 3,000 units of PCC. How long do prothrombin complex concentrates last? Not that long. The half-life of factor 7 is 7 hours. They last for a number of hours, not much longer. So you've got to give vitamin K concurrently. Some will say give vitamin K first. Some will say give PCCs first. Give both of them. What's the dose of vitamin K in life-threatening bleeding? 10 milligrams of vitamin K. You can put it in 50 cc's of saline, and you can run it in over about 10 to 12 to 13 minutes. Don't forget to do that. When do you check the INR? 15 minutes after you've given them PCCs. When do you check it again? Five or six hours later. I write the orders almost automatically. And you're checking that INR to know if you need to redose the PCCs, right? Absolutely, because your, your best guess could have been a bit off and so forth. Now, what INR do you want if someone's got intracranial bleeding? That's a really good question. Most hematologists would tell you with an INR of 1.5, you're operating at about 40% coagulation factors. And most hematologists would tell you that's what's called normal. So certainly, I would aim for INR 1.5. But aiming for 1.3 is ridiculous. You might never get there. 
Walter's comments were dead on. I want to hit one additional issue to really make folks understand how much logistics matter in this. Uh, we talked about the time for hematoma expansion in a non-anticoagulated patient being over the first few hours, and there's not too much you could do about that. But for an anticoagulated patient, it's the first hour where you could have the most ramification. By that one hour mark, they will have rebled a significant amount, and that might be the difference between survival and death. So you must get this drug in as quickly as possible. And writing the order has not actually caused that drug to hit the patient's bloodstream. When you look at your system and realize you have to first call the blood bank, and then they have to call a hematologist to get approval, and then it has to come up, and then the nurses are not familiar with it and have to find a nurse educator to allow this to be mixed. If that's what's happening, then your patients are going to do poorly in a correctable situation. So you must look at this as a quality assurance project and find every part of the chain that is causing there to be a time delay and eliminate it. That's the golden hour of intracranial hemorrhages, man. The golden hour is from the moment to see the patients, the white of their eyes. You got to get those coagulopathies improved immediately, immediately. And if you look back at the interact studies and the attached studies, I suspect one of the reasons the benefits weren't that great of controlled blood pressure is it was too late. The bleeding had happened already. All right. So time is of the essence. I'm, I'm loving how all the logistics and the evidence and the path of phys are all just coming together into this beautiful hole. All right. We've talked about low platelets. We've talked about high INRs. Uh, next, I'd like to talk about unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin. I mean, let's say you've got a patient who has a history of cancer and they're being treated for a DVT that happened a few months ago. Dr. Himmel? Protamine, protamine. We all realize that reversing low molecular weight heparin is only about 50 or 60% effective protamine. That's what I use. And it depends on how much they've been on. If they've, look at the dose of fragment or dolteferin they've been on in the last eight hours. I reverse it completely. And for the amount they've been on between eight and 12 hours previously, I'll reverse it at about half the rate. So for a fragment, it's basically one milligram of protamine for every 100 units of fragment, which is dolteferin. And for anoxaparin, it's milligram of protamine to one milligram of anoxaparin. The maximum dose of protamine is, of course, 50 milligrams is the maximum dose, and I, and I run it over about 15 minutes. All right. We'll have all those dosages in the show notes. The last one I want to talk about are the DOACs, and we have to divide these amongst the dabigatran and all the rest of them. So patient on dabigatran, ICH, what do you do? I'm definitely going to reverse it, and I think you've got three options in 2017. The best evidence today, I'm not saying it's great, but it's the best evidence today is to use Iderocizumab. It's got a cool name, actually. It's called Prax Bind. I thought that was pretty cool. So I'd use Iderocizumab, which is an antibody, and you get five grams over about 15 to 20 minutes. If you haven't got that, well, then you're stuck. There's not much evidence for anything, but I'm going to throw a kitchen sink at people with major bleeds because they're at risk of horrible outcomes. If I don't do something, I'll probably use a prothrombin complex concentrate. The best evidence, and I'm not saying it's great, with the Bigatran is one of the original prothrombin complex concentrates. It's called FIBA, F-E-I-B-A, factor eight inhibiting bypass activity. And if you haven't got idarocizumab and you haven't got FIBA, well, then you're going to end up with the, one of the current products, such as 
Octoplex in Canada, Berryplex in Canada, and I think in the States it's called Kencentra or something like that. K-Centra, uh, exactly. K-Centra, right. is that it? Yeah, so I, w- I, w- I would use those products. All right, so for Dabigatran, first line is Adarucizumab. If you don't have that, Fiba. And if you don't have that, then PCCs, and this isn't based on any strong evidence out there. All right, so that's dabigatran. What about the rest of the DOAX, the apixabens, the rivaroxabens, for example? What do you, what's your go-to there for reversal? Um, at the moment in Canada, uh, all we basically have is prothrombin complex concentrates. And there's some physiological evidence that's been published suggesting it may be helpful. So we're, we're going to be using prothrombin complex concentrates in doses up to, but probably not more than 3,000 units. Certainly, there are uh, there's some new research in a drug called endanazanet, which is a, a decoy drug to grab up all the antitheny inhibitors. Uh, I'm sure once that's available, it'll be used. It's not available yet in Canada. All right. And of course, with all of these, the guidelines do suggest that we give charcoal as well if they're within two hours of the onset of bleed. Particularly in overdoses, yeah. Right. Okay. So... Before we start to leave blood thinners, we, of course, have to talk about the PATCH study. Um, now, this is a newer study on ICH patients who are taking antiplatelet agents, and it suggests that there's no benefit and maybe even some harm to giving platelet transfusions to patients taking antiplatelet agents. So this goes against all the older data that suggested an association between antiplatelet use, hematoma expansion, and worse outcomes. You know, on the one hand, it makes sense to give platelets to patients who are on antiplatelet therapy who are bleeding in the head. And we were doing this for years, uh, but then this patch study came along that showed that there may even be some harm and certainly no benefit. You know, it's a good example of science trumping common sense. Maybe, Scott, we'll start with you. What's your take on giving platelets for patients with a head bleed on one or even two antiplatelet agents? What I caution people against is conflating this evidence to patients who have a bleed requiring neurosurgical intervention, whether that be surgical or the placement of a drain, and patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage and patients with traumatic brain injury. You're still going to find most of the neurosurgeons recommending reversal, and we have no evidence to say they are incorrect. The PATCH trial was primarily on non-intervened on bleeds. I have to agree with that, but we have to realize almost all the patients at past trial were on aspirin, aspirin alone. Very few were on clopidogrel and very few were on dipyridamol. But certainly in the past trial, every event that was measured was worse with platelets, death, size of the hematoma, clinical status and defensive survival were all worse. So there's no question about it. No more platelets to reverse aspirin an intracranial hemorrhage. What if the patient's on dual antiplatelet therapy? So, Walter, let's say um, it's it's well-known publicly that you've got a stent, you're on dual antiplatelet agent. Let's say, God forbid, I really hope this doesn't happen, Walter, but let's say, God forbid, you have a, a brain bleed, an intracerebral hemorrhage. Would you want platelet transfusion? Had the study shown no benefit but no harm, I would have said maybe, but the study showed harm. So I'm going to have to say no. Now, there's one medication that causes bleeding in the head that we sometimes encounter that we haven't talked about yet, and that is TPA. 
So both of you have seen patients, I'm sure, that are receiving TPA for an ischemic stroke or a massive PE or a STEMI and then bleed in the head. What can we do for that unfortunate patient in terms of limiting hematoma expansion? There's no good, reliable treatment, so I just have to go with opinion. And the American Stroke Association has a couple of opinions, and hematologists have a couple of opinions. You could consider giving cryoprecipitate, because cryoprecipitate has fibrinogen, and of course, DPA depletes fibrinogen. That being said, it often doesn't deplete it that much. So if someone's got a major bleed right after TPA, am I going to give cryoprecipitate 10 units to the average adult? Yes, I am. No question about it. Uh, I will give that, hopefully, a measure of fibrinogen level beforehand, but I'm not going to wait for the result. Certainly, if fibrinogen level comes back at less than uh, 1.5 grams per uh, 150 milligram per 100 cc's, which I think is 1.5 grams per liter, I'm probably going to give more cryoprecipitate because that's a definitely a low level. So cryoprecipitate is probably your most logical go-to drug in that particular circumstance. Am I going to give tranexamic acid in that situation? I'd be uneasy about that. I'd give cryoprecipitate. What's the downside of giving uh, tranexamic acid in a post-TPA bleed? I'm marginally concerned in this situation about inducing a thrombosis. Also, I'm going to be able to give cryoprecipitate reasonably quickly, probably 30 or 40 minutes. I'm not sure what benefit transamic acid is. I know certainly in the CRASH trial, CRASH-2 trial, transamic acid was phenomenally safe, phenomenally safe. In fact, I found it quite humorous that the patients who got transamic acid had less ischemic events than the ones who didn't. That was pretty interesting. But in this situation, I'd be a bit uneasy about it. Now, if I was had a patient with a major bleed after getting TPA, and I could not get up the hands and cry or precipitate, and they're dying right in front of me, will I give transamic acid? Yes. All right. And Dr. Wangart, your take on uh, how to manage post-TPA head bleeds? Yeah, I'm with Walter on everything he said. I would say this is beneficial, especially if you're a stroke center, to just make a protocol ahead of time. Let the ED, the critical care, and the neuro folks all sit down and just make it. And then you don't have to think about it because you've got enough stress when you've gotten a TPA bleed to have to think about de novo what you're going to do. So that's one thing. The thing I will really stress is to find these bleeds. So if you have any change in mental status on a patient who's received TPA, the answer to that is get a finger stick and then take them to CT scan and find it early because the reversal doesn't really matter if you don't find it until two hours after the bleed has occurred. Again, time is of the essence. I'll tell you something. I've had four patients bleed from TPA. They all did exactly the same thing. They all grabbed their head, they all turned pale, and they all started vomiting. Boom, just like that. All right. So, so far in our discussion of the management of ICH, we've talked about a couple of the big six things that we need to cover. Uh, we've talked about blood pressure management and coagulation derangements. There's a few more of these factors that we need to manage well, and that may affect outcomes in our patient, and namely, that's glucose control, temperature control, and ICP control. Dr. Weingart, let's start with glucose. Our 75-year-old woman with ICH is diabetic, so she's at risk to have glucose abnormalities. What do we need to know about managing hyperglycemia and hypoglycemia in these ICH patients? 
Sure. Well, they've got enough insults, so they don't need the additional insult of hypoglycemia. So obviously treat that the second you find it. And finger sticks in any altered mental status patient is, is just de rigueur, so we don't have to stress that. But you got to be careful because you don't want to go too high either. Now, there was a generation during which we were aggressively managing uh, sugar levels in all our critical care patients, and we would have very tight glucose control, 90 to 120. Uh, what subsequent studies discovered is that for the injured brain, the actual brain glucose level is lower than the serum. And if you tightly manage patients down to 120, they might actually be in the hypoglycemic range in the injured brain. So we've been much more permissive. So uh, you want to have a normal glucose in terms of the low range. So 70 or 80 as your absolute low, but you also, don't want to start treating the high glucoses until something around 180. 160 to 180 is the range uh, where we start looking. No longer would we ever tightly manage the glucose of a patient with a brain injury. In Canadian units, that's uh, about four millimoles per liter is about 70. And more than 180, that's more than 10 millimoles per liter. So we're talking about between four and 10. Yeah. So for the average Canadian, in fact, for all Canadian physicians, if the blood sugar is under 10, do nothing. I think two major uh, uh, critical care studies and a big stroke study showed years ago, trying to keep your blood sugar between five to seven is a ticket for a disaster. So under 10, nothing. Over 10, I might give a small dose of rapid-acting uh, insulin, but certainly under 10, just keep my eye on it. Do not treat acutely blood sugar under 10 in people with cranial hemorrhages. So that's uh, glucose. What about temperature control? You know, our 75-year-old woman with an ICH presents with a temperature of 37.9, kind of a borderline fever, uh, which is actually quite common in ICH. What do we need to know about temperature control in ICH, Dr. Weingart? Yeah, you don't want these patients febrile. That, that's what it comes down to. I can make it just as easy as that. And they will become febrile just as a result of the presence of the blood in the brain. Uh, you know, we call it a brain blood fever. And so you might have to aggressively manage these patients in the ICU. Uh, usually this has not started yet in the ED too commonly. You don't have to worry about it. But if you do check the temp and it's high, I would cool these patients. And in general, the uh, medications like acetaminophen are not going to be the answer. You need some active cooling just to bring them down to normothermia. Uh, in patients with high ICP, we would occasionally cool these patients beyond that. That hasn't panned out so well. So now I could just say, keep them normothermic. So we need to know how to manage blood pressure, glucose, temperature. What about seizure prophylaxis? You know, about 10 to 15% of patients will have a seizure with most of those occurring in the first 24 hours. So they could very well happen in your emergency department. Low bar hemorrhages, the amyloid angiopathy ones in older patients, they're at particular risk of getting seizures. Is there any role for seizure prophylaxis in the emergency department, like phosphenitoin or phenytoin, for example, Dr. Weingart? And again, you've differentiated very nicely between things like traumatic brain injury where we usually would be giving up, up to a week of prophylactic anticonvulsants and medical ICH. And in that latter category, most of your neurointensivists would recommend not prophylactically treating seizure. And I, I think I'm in that camp as well. If you show me an enormous bleed that yet we're still going with aggressive critical care, maybe. But uh, outside of that circumstance, I would say if they seize, treat it, and then give them anticonvulsants. But until that point, generally we would hold off. Now, now, of course, uh, as you said, with the uh, lower hemorrhages, the seizure rate's 
quote anywhere from 5 to 15%, but there's also something called non-convulsive seizures. So you've got to keep that in the back of your mind. The bottom line there is we generally don't need to give seizure prophylaxis, just treat a seizure when it happens. But I think it's important to know that many of these patients will actually be having non-convulsive epileptic activity. And the sooner you get them monitored in the ICU, the better they'll be able to detect kind of seizure yeah, activity. I think in a very sophisticated center, probably monitoring is almost the norm. Scott can comment on this. I think if a patient has a moderate bleed, but they're deeply unconscious and their ICH isn't up, you've got to wonder, gee, ICH isn't up, not that big a bleed. Maybe they're having status uh, epilepticus without the uh, convulsions as a possibility. So I think you've got to keep it back in your mind. Uh, so far, we, we've talked about blood pressure, we've talked about glucose, we've talked about temperature, anticoagulation. So for blood pressure, if you can remember one thing, it's to target a systolic blood pressure of about 140. For glucose control, many patients do become hyperglycemic. Check the glucose frequently, and although there's no good target serum glucose level, it's advisable to avoid hyper and hypoglycemia. And for temperature, many patients with ICH will develop fever, worsens outcomes, so we need to treat fever aggressively. Next up, we're going to talk about risk stratification, prognostication, and indications for surgery. We had alluded to this a little bit earlier, that some people suggest that there's this kind of self-fulfilling prognostic pessimism when it comes to ICH. And this pessimism sometimes leads to withdrawal of life support in patients who otherwise might have a reasonably good outcome if they were managed aggressively. My understanding is that despite the pretty bad prognosis of many of these patients overall, there is some evidence to suggest that we probably should be aggressively treating the vast majority of these patients. So that brings us to prognostication. There's some pretty good scores, like the ICH score, for example, that can help us accurately predict clinical outcomes. So Dr. Himmel, what are the predictors of poor outcome in ICH? And more importantly, what are the predictors of early deterioration that we've been talking about, uh, like the patient crashing in your ED? Yeah, so there are a couple of scores for outcomes, but I have to preface by saying the following. These scores refer to populations as do all scores, not individuals. And they should not be used in this area as an excuse for doing nothing, as an excuse for excessive pessimism. Now, I've got to tell you a couple of stories. I recall seeing a patient about 15 years ago with an ICH, and I told a family, it was a fairly large ICH, that uh, this person should be extubated. They're probably going to die in the next 12 hours, if not sooner. So we extubated the patient. Well, of course, she didn't die. She kept on breathing. She was reintubated. She left the hospital eventually, was able to live independently. So be careful of prognosing early on. That, that's number one. On the other hand, it's reasonable to tell the family what the possibilities are. So prognosticating is helpful, but using it as your guiding tool for a DNR or do not intervene uh, status independently is not a good idea. The patient's values, the family's values, these things are all very important considerations. That being said, what are the big factors? And I think a guy called Hempful did a lot of work on this. Age over 80. That's a back prognostic factor for anything. Bleeding in the posterior cranial fossa, that's a risk factor for hydrocephalus and death. 
the size of the uh, intracranial bleed, certainly anything over 30 mils is a major bleed. Intraventricular blood, if you've got a putaminal hemorrhage or a amyloid hemorrhage, which is so massive that the blood's gone into the ventricles, that's a poor prognostic sign. And of course, one of the best prognostic signs are, what's the patient's GCS at the moment you assess them? Somebody who's deeply unconscious with GCS of three or four is probably going to lie worse than someone with a GCS of 11 or 12. So those are the big factors. Certainly, GCS is a big deal. A large hematoma is a big deal. An intraventricular blood is a big deal. But none of this is a good excuse for doing nothing or just giving up. Unless the patient has other comorbidities, philosophical beliefs, doesn't believe in intervention, you've got to consider all these factors. But simply go up to a family and say, uh, this person's got an IC score of five or six, their mortality is 100%, we're going to withhold all treatment. That'll produce the obvious, uh, death. And in that case, the common cause of death is going to be uh, the absence of treatment. So be careful and use these tools as a tool, not as a guiding light and a command. All right. So just to review there, the ICH score includes the GCS, the age, uh, the location, whether it's infratentorial or supratentorial, whether there's intraventricular blood present, and lastly, the ICH volume, if it's more than 30 cc's. Increases the risk. Yeah. Could you just go over for us quickly how you'd estimate the volume? Um, I mean, unless we're getting you know a, a, a stat report from a, a radiologist, sometimes you know these happen at three in the morning. We can't sure. get a report well, so it, quickly. Well, it's all based on geometry. Remember the yeah. Look at the CT scan. You go up and down. You find the the area on your CT scan where you've got the biggest size of the bleed, and that's probably going to be an ellipsoid in shape. So you take the both perpendicular diameters, the biggest ones, and that's your A and your B. So find the largest area on your CT scan where you've got your bleed, measure those two diameters, and that's A times B. So that's the surface area. And then you want to find out how deep the bleed is. So you have to go up on your CT scan towards the uh, cerebral cortex and go down and see how many cuts have got the bleeds. And based on those cuts, whether they're five millimeter cuts or three millimeter cuts, you're going to figure out what the depth of the bleed is. So it's A times B times C divided by two. And it's probably worth looking at because the neurosurgeons are often going to want to have an idea what the size of the uh, hemorrhage is, unless, of course, they can look at it themselves over the internet. My, I did my uh, neurointensive care training at a very aggressive center, and they taught me very early on uh, with stories that I witnessed very similar to Walter's of patients. I'm like, this patient's not walking out of here. And then six months later, they did to a fully neurologically intact uh, survival. So I, I've stopped attempting neuroprognostication based on Gestalt. Using a score is good. Um, in a patient with a good pre-morbid state, uh, they were able to manage their ADLs. Uh, we would have been very aggressive at my old centers. At some of the places I practiced recently, uh, they're more circumspect on who they're going to aggressively intervene on. And at first, that was off-putting. Um, but they were usually right. And so there is definitely a patient population that will have horrible prognosis, regardless of how aggressive your care is. And it probably is a big waste of healthcare resources. So using scores like the ICH score from folks like Claude Hempel and the other scores out there, it's probably very reasonable to then have a conversation that is slightly coloring the way you discuss it with the family and see what their wishes are.
let's talk about indications for surgery. Now, I find this incredibly important because in Canada, at least, and especially if you're in a community hospital or a rural hospital, you often need to talk to neurosurgeons on the phone who may or may not actually have access to the images that you're looking at. And they seem to be able to make decisions of whether the patient's surgical really quite quickly. And I always have this this kind of funny pit in my stomach, which tells me that, you know, I'm not really sure whether whether the patient is actually neurosurgical or not. You know, when we speak to our neurosurgeons about a patient with ICH, we really should have a pretty good idea of which patients are good candidates for surgery so that we can advocate for our patients when we need to. Now, it makes sense to surgically evacuate a head bleed because that would decrease ICP, it relieves mechanical compression, it minimizes neurotoxic edema, but those aren't patient-oriented outcomes. So, Dr. Weingart, what are some general principles when it comes to which patients with ICH need surgery? Cerebellar bleed, unless they're pristine or super tiny, it's probably going to get an operation. You probably should be aggressively reaching out to your neurosurgeons, even more aggressively than you would be just on a regular bleed. Now, beyond that, uh, if you have a lobar hemorrhage that's close to the surface, Maybe. It's going to depend on your neurosurgeon and their feelings on the evidence currently, but those are amenable. Um, Deeper bleeds probably are not going to get an operation. Um, There is this concept of, you know, stereotopic localization of bleeds and then sucking them out. And you could hit even small hemorrhages, but it's no free ride. Every operation bears its own risk. So you evacuate that tiny hemorrhage, but did you actually benefit the patient? Uh, It's very difficult to really interpret the data right now. It keeps going back and forth. Where we stand right now is it's going to depend on your individual neurointerventionalist or neurosurgeon for any given patient. Uh, Another easy category is the patients with interventricular hemorrhage that's actually causing hydrocephalus. They're not going to get a frank operation, but those patients definitively benefit from drainage through an interventricular drain. Okay. So the the cerebellar bleeds that are more than three centimeters, pretty clear indication for surgery there. Uh, For interventricular hemorrhages, there's a pretty clear case to put in a, a drain there. And for the rest of them, it's controversial. Let's go back to the case now. Uh, The nurse calls you to the resuscitation room, and your patient now has a GCS of six. The pupils are equal and reactive. Uh, She's found to be aphasic. Her eyes open spontaneously, but she won't track. She obeys simple commands on the left side only intermittently, She has a dense paralysis on the right. So just to remind the listeners, at this point, the patient has not been intubated. And Dr. Weingart, you had had intimated earlier uh, that you would aggressively treat the airway before they get to a GCS of six. But let's say you haven't. You know, this unfortunate turn of events with this patient is no huge surprise because it turns out that early hematoma expansion occurs in about one quarter to one third of patients within three hours of symptom onset. Again, time is of the essence. And when hematomas in the brain expand, there's a good chance that ICP will go up. So let's talk ICP. Um, Dr. Himmel, why is it so important to avoid elevated ICP and manage elevated ICP aggressively in these ICH patients? ICP causes the brain to swell 
ICP squishes your brain against the skull. It causes intracellular edema. It causes obstructive hydrocephalus. It causes herniation. Increasing amounts of ICP produces death. ICP is something else. It impedes cerebral perfusion pressure. You got a map of 80 or 90. You've got intracranial pressure of 20 or less. You've got a cerebral perfusion pressure of 60 or 70. As the intracranial pressure goes up, which is why you've got to be very careful about blood pressure control in deeply unconscious people. But as the ICP goes up, your cerebral perfusion pressure is going to get lower and lower and lower. And clearly, if your ICP is 60 or 70 and you're still alive, your cerebral perfusion pressure is zero. ICP is a big deal because of CPP, perfusion pressure, and it's a big deal because of herniation. All right. So we now know that this is very important to manage properly. So one of the first things you're going to be thinking about in terms of ICP is, is airway management. So let's start with that. Dr. Weingart, can you just take us through the steps of how you'd manage the airway in general in a patient that you suspect has elevated intracranial pressure, let's say this patient with an ICH? Okay. If you take nothing else from my portions of these talk, take this. There's a very different airway management strategy for a patient with suspected ICH or any brain injury when they are presenting in extremis on arrival or they're crashing or they're herniating versus a patient who's been getting progressively more obtunded. They are slowly declining as their hematoma and expands and their ICP goes up. Uh, but you have time. The patient's still breathing. They're not vomiting. They haven't soiled their airway. Those two situations are very different, and I manage them very differently. In that patient who you need to get an airway now because the patient is going downhill, they uh, maybe already have vomit in their mouth or they're herniating, you don't do anything except a perfect RSI. That is the treatment for those patients. But in the category of patients that are slowly declining and you've made the decision over the period of like 20 minutes, ah, I just don't like the way they look. They're kind of retching a little bit. I really think now's the time, but you don't have to do it in the next two minutes. Then I would do what I call a neurocritical care protective intubation. And this is a a quite complicated regimen. My friend George Kovach, who I think is one of the best people on airway in Canada, is, is very against the concepts I'm going to tell you. And I think the reason why is he is conflating that situation of a patient with a big bleed who comes in uh, apneic with a, the very different situation I'm describing of the semi-elective neurocritical care intubation. So which of the two categories are we talking about, Anton? Well, we've got this patient whose GCS is now six. They're not coning in front of you, uh, but their hematoma is almost certainly expanding. They're gradually getting worse. Okay. So uh, a patient who's slowly declining, but they're not apneic, I have some time. I'm going to do an extensive setup. Uh, the first thing I'm going to do is uh, get the equipment to the bedside for any possible problem because these patients, they just do not tolerate the joke of hypoxemia very well. So I want all my airway equipment there. And then I'm going to look at the patient's blood pressure. And if it's not already managed uh, fairly aggressively, even more aggressively than I would accept before this point of intubation, I might manage it more aggressively. So if they were at that 156 that I would normally tolerate, I might bring them down before the intubation to 140, knowing they might spike. And that's a nice place for them to be because I have some room now between the 140 and 160. I'm going to consider 
some additional pretreatment medications. Now, it used to be the Rex for lidocaine. I don't even touch that anymore. So that's not even in my regimen. Uh, I think the evidence on that is pretty weak. And I've seen patients get very profoundly hypotensive from it. It is a uh, IV anesthetic agent. So I don't use that anymore. Uh, for me, I use fentanyl. I use it at much higher doses than people are comfortable at. I use five micrograms per kilogram. And I would only administer that medication once I have everything else I need for rapid sequence intubation at the bedside because some of these patients will get apneic. So if you go in with the idea that when you push the fentanyl, they may become apneic, uh, then you're fine because then you just immediately proceed with your RSI just as you normally would. If on the other hand, you gave the fentanyl and then are preparing your airway equipment and the patient becomes apneic, uh, that could be a very bad situation of hypoxemia, of apnea. So don't let that happen. In addition to the fentanyl, you have a whole bunch of other things sitting on that table. I have some drawn-up push-dose nicardipine. I also have some drawn-up push-dose epinephrine, and this allows me to handle both high blood pressure and low blood pressure. So I am buffered by any problems that may come of that. I would argue, and now this is not evidence-based, but it's my practice, that if I'm going to do one of these neuroprotective intubations with fentanyl, that I've already placed an arterial line in these patients. And I will see instantaneously if there's any effects on blood pressure, and I can mitigate those effects immediately. If you're very familiar with these drugs and you have uh, a basis of practice to know how to use them, then by all means, do a neuroprotective intubation. If on the other hand, you're like, ah, what's the dose? How do you do this? How long was I supposed to push it under? You're probably gonna hurt yourself more by dealing with something outside your range of experience. Just do a perfect RSI and don't let the patient become hypoxemic. So that's a bit about pretreatment. Why don't you go on, Dr. Weingart? Let's talk about induction agents, muscle relaxants. There's, of course, patient position, which is important. Can you comment on those things? Sure. So my, my agents of choice are Atomidate and Rock. Propofol might seem to be attractive. It's probably what the patient's going to be sedated on once they're intubated. I have seen hypotension with this as my induction agent, especially when combined with something like the fentanyl. So Atomidate really is a cardiac stable agent in these patients. So it just takes one thing off of the list. They're very unlikely to drop their blood pressure with Atomidate, uh, especially giving it with the fentanyl. So that's my agent of choice. Some people like Ketofol, uh, that, that's a nice agent as well. It gets kind of complicated. And if you get the dosages slightly wrong on your individual patient, they may have some increase in their blood pressure from the ketamine perspective. So I, I just avoid it. Atomidate just makes a lot of sense. If you're in a country without Atomidate, then maybe uh, the propofol-heavy Ketofol, which is like 75% propofol, 25% ketamine may make some sense, but I think it's too complicated. I would probably use propofol and have my epi standing by and may lower my doses of fentanyl in those cases. What about in those centers that don't have Atomidate? What about using ketamine alone? Are you, are you, you avoiding that because of, um, of blood pressure concerns? Yeah, I'd be the only time ketamine screws you up in head injury because the idea of it increasing ICP independently is garbage, but we know that ketamine in some patients causes a very high spike in blood pressure and especially in the first 24 hours where these patients have lost their autoregulatory activity, um that spike in blood pressure can spike their ICP, so I just don't think it's a great agent. I'd rather you use propofol carefully than than use ketamine alone. Okay. So Ketofol if you don't have Atomidate, but if you have Atomidate, Atomidate is definitely your go-to. And then uh, muscle relaxants? Either one, whatever you want. I mean, you should have already had a good neuro exam by the point you're intubating. And if there's other people that want to see the patient before the intubation, 
then let them get their exam before you stick a tube in with the rock um, because you have time. Like we say, we have some minutes in these patients. So call the neurosurgeon down, let them examine them again. Say, I think I'm going to take the airway. I don't like the looks of this patient. Do you want to examine them before I do? And usually they'll say yes. They'll send down their resident or registrar. And then uh, you could use rock uronium feeling pretty safe. There was this potential idea that it sucks, increases ICP. It's, it's kind of garbage. And I think it's pretty much been debunked in the neurocritical care world. So use whichever one you want. Uh, rock uronium just makes uh, a lot of sense for a number of reasons to me. All right. In terms of patient position, especially if you suspect that the patient has elevated ICP, you want to keep the head of the bed elevated to about 30 degrees. And you'd like to try and maintain this when you're intubating. Can you just give us uh, sort of the logistics of, of how you do that or if you're going to do that? Yeah, I, I do. You know, lying these patients flat when you actually have a um, ICP monitoring, you'll see they get, they get dramatically spiked. If they were sitting up and you lie them down, they spike their ICP. So we try to intubate these patients sitting up. Now, that's a lot easier to do with video laryngoscopy than direct, but you could get it done either way. Um, you just will lower the entirety of the bed so they're sitting at the same general position in relation to your chest as they would have been when they're flat. I found I'm intubating most of my patients with the head of the bed up at this stage of the game between 20 or 30 degrees. So this really doesn't vary much from my practice. All right. So let's say you've got the tube in now. Now you got to think about post-intubation sedation as well as vent settings. You know, again, we want to minimize a rise in ICP. Dr. Weingart, how do you recommend that we do the post-intubation sedation and vent settings in these patients that we're worried about ICP and we want to make sure their blood pressure remains at the right level? Sure. So uh, let, let's unpack this. First, let's talk about our post-intubation sedation. The darlings of the neurocritical care world are propofol, which is going to decrease the cerebral metabolic rate, as well as allow a very titratable uh, degree of sedation. If we overdo it, we turn it off. The patient will be examinable in a few minutes. Or dexmedetomidine, which also has potential effects on cerebral metabolic rate and uh, gives you an examinable patient even as they're sedated. It's almost a dissociated state as opposed to the true sedation of something like propofol. So either of those, um, be gentle with your pain control, but certainly analgese your patients because pain will cause increased blood pressure, increased ICP, but you don't want to overdo it because if you snow them, those agents take longer to wear off and your neurosurgeons will be pissed. In terms of actually ventilating them, I, I think these patients are at risk of acute lung injury from a uh, global inflammatory state. So I do use lung protective ventilation. I usually do seven cc's per kg on these patients. If they have other concomitant injuries that are causing hypoxemia, you can use PEEP, but you just use the lowest PEEP that gets you the oxygen levels that you need because you don't want these patients to be hypoxemic either. So shoot for a saturation of 95%. And if you could do it with FiO2, great. If you need PEEP, use it because it's probably not going to increase the ICP if they have uh, lungs that are not going to transmit that pressure because the brain is not going to be seeing that PEEP in lungs that need it. And then Obviously, the one we think about most is the CO2 level. And for me, that number is 35 to 40. I am not hyperventilating these patients unless they are actively herniating. 
And so I'm just going to keep them at normocapnia. You can use your end tidal CO2 to help you know where they sit if it's high. So an, an end tidal greater than 35 should prompt you to dial up the respiratory rate. A low end tidal CO2, one less than 35, may be as a result of a matching PaCO2 or it just may be as a result of VQ mismatching or shunting. So you should be very careful about allowing the respiratory rate to be lowered based on the end tidal CO2. I would only get a blood gas in those patients. Let's move on to hyperosmolar therapy. So in talking about raised ICP, the question of when and how to give mannitol or hypertonic saline or even sodium bicarb comes up. Dr. Weingart, what are the indications for hyperosmolar therapy and which one would you suggest? I mean, you really want to have some indicator of elevated ICP or herniation uh, before giving these agents. So just a obtundation of mental status may not be enough in the ICH patients to make this a good idea. But if you already have a uh, intracranial pressure monitor in, most of the folks in the eMERGE won't, or you've done what Walter's already advocated, which is you've thrown the ultrasound probe on the eye and seen a widening of the optic nerve sheath diameter, uh, well, then it may make sense. Now, I've always loved the hypertonic salines because uh, I could give any patient 250 regardless of their initial sodium level without even thinking about it. Even if they turned out to have concomitant profound hyponatremia, that will probably be a benefit to them rather than harm. And it's not going to do anything negative to the patient's inotropy or blood pressure. In fact, it will probably improve those values uh, and therefore augment cerebral perfusion pressure. So I, I love giving the 3% hypertonic an empiric hit of 250 uh, over uh, 10 minutes, you're, you're going to get where you want to go. Now, if I was in my ICU world, uh, then we had what we called the bullet, which is 23.4% hypertonic saline. They came in uh, 30 ml vials, and we would just push slowly that 30 mLs, and you'd get a very rapid, easy, demonstrable decrease in the ICP. These patients all had ICP monitors in. We would do that in the eMERGE only when we had a blown pupil and we believe the patient is actually herniating. Mannitol is fine as well. The problem is if you give mannitol, you must place a Foley catheter and match the patient's urinary output losses with normal saline or some other form of uh, non-hypotonic crystalloid, because otherwise they will definitively become hypotensive. So a quick review here of airway and hyperosmolar therapy. For airway, first, you need to divide patients into two categories. Those that require immediate airway protection, so if they're herniating or they're apneic or very low GCS or they have a soiled airway. And the second category are those that are slowly declining, whom you deem candidates for airway protection. Now, for patients in that first category, that's simple, standard RSI. For those patients in the second category, Dr. Weingart recommends a neurocritical care protective intubation. First, ensure a good neurologic exam before paralyzing the patient if time permits. Get the equipment that you need to the bedside. Keep the head of the bed elevated to at least 20 degrees throughout to prevent a spike in ICP and to maximize ventilation. Have nicardipine or libidolol as well as push-dose epinephrine ready at the bedside to manage any extreme deviations in blood pressure. 
consider titrating the systolic blood pressure to 140 to 160 before intubation, preferably with an R-line in place. Consider fentanyl, 3 to 5 micrograms per kilogram pre-treatment 3 minutes before intubation, but beware of apnea. Use automidate or ketofol for induction. Automidate's the preferred agent for induction. If you don't have automidate, ketofol in a mixture of 25% ketamine to 75% propofol is probably your best bet. For post-intubation sedation, if you haven't given fentanyl before, you should probably start with fentanyl and use propofol or dexmedetomidine for ongoing sedation. In terms of ventilation, use a lung protective ventilation at 7 milliliters per kilogram. You can use PEEP to achieve an O2 sat of 95% and try and maintain normal capnia. That's a CO2 of 35 to 40 unless the patient's herniating. In terms of hyperosmolar therapy, don't just use it for a low GCS alone. You should have some sort of evidence that there's raised ICP. Our experts recommend hypertonic saline 3%, 250 milliliters over 10 minutes. It's preferred because there are less concerns with sodium derangement and changes in hemodynamics. If you do use mannitol, it's advisable to place a bladder catheter and match urinary losses with normal saline administration to avoid that dangerous hypotension. Now it's time for our special bonus with Dr. Peter Brindley, neurointensivist from Edmonton. So Dr. Brindley, if there were three things that you could teach emergency physicians from a neurocritical care perspective what they should be doing in the emergency department when it comes to ICH, what would those three things be? Well, before I do tell you that, the first thing I'd say is I think our emergency doctors are doing a fantastic job with neurocritical care. That would be number one. So none of this is is admonishment or overt criticism. The three things I see lots of people could do better, and that includes my ICU trainees, is control of blood pressure, how a mannitol is administered, in other words, how you give the order and ensure it's given quickly, and how you hyperventilate. And those really are the three things that should be done in the emergency room. Uh, raising heads to the bed and giving paralysis and things of that sort don't have the acute benefit of maintaining a good blood pressure, cerebral perfusion, getting some osmotherapy in and uh, hyperventilating in those few patients that have blown pupils will do. So those would be my top three. All right. So let's start with uh, the mannitol dosing. Even though most of the studies that show mannitol and hypertonic saline head-to-head aren't really that much different than each other, uh, some people do prefer hypertonic saline because mannitol will lower the blood pressure. Let's say you don't have hypertonic saline available and you're going to use mannitol. How should we think about dosing mannitol? You've made the point, but I'll make it again. Either agent is absolutely fine. I give more mannitol because our emergency room is more comfortable with mannitol, not because I think it's superior. And you've mentioned good reasons why hypertonic might be better. All I do, you know, critical care is simple. The hard thing is keeping it simple. And so I actually teach people with mannitol. It's a big bag for a big person and a small bag for a small person. Now, that doesn't sound very academic, but from a crisis management point of view, I think it is. The reason I say that is a big bag is 500 cc's. It's a 20% solution, so that means 100 grams. A small bag is 250 cc's, 20% solution, so that's 50 grams. 
The typical dose given is 0.5 to 1 gram per kilo in a patient that's having a crisis in their brain. And so if you backtrack all of that math, a big bag is 100 grams to a big person. It's about a gram per kilo. And a small bag, 50, is uh, the same dose, one per kilo to a small person. Now, if you want to get fancy and say give three quarters of that bag, give two thirds of that bag because you've guesstimated their weight differently, that's perfectly fine too. But I can tell you in the middle of a neuro crisis with a dozen different things going on and you wanting to get the patient stable to the CAT scanner and a neurosurgical opinion all in very short order, simply saying give a big bag wide open, a small bag wide open can be very uh, expeditious. It can get one of the most vital things done and done fast. Love it. Okay. Big bag for a big person, small bag for a small person for Manitol. Quick, simple, effective. The next point you wanted to make was regarding measurement of blood pressure and how that affects the intracerebral pressure. What do you think eMERGE docs should know about measuring blood pressure so that they can really titrate their medication to get the best blood pressure for their head? Gotcha. Well, thanks. I'll, I'll try and keep this to brass tacks. I'm a big physiology nerd and I, you know, I'm from the school that likes to individualize therapy and, and try a blood pressure, see if it makes it better or worse, rather than just this study says you must achieve this blood pressure, you must achieve that blood pressure. However, rather than start saying everybody has different blood pressure targets, the bigger point I would like to make is that we raise the heads of the bed. Now, when you raise the head of the bed, you improve venous drainage, but you can decrease arterial cerebral perfusion and in, in addition to that, you may be measuring with the manometer at the patient's wrist or at their phlebostatic axis rather than at their elevated brain. So in fact, the blood pressure may be lower still in their brain than you're measuring. So all I would say is be aware that you may be overestimating the blood pressure in the brain if you read it off the wrist. So therefore, let me let me put this in everyday English. If you're getting a map of 80 at the wrist, the map may only be 70 or even 65 if the patient's head is significantly elevated. Or you could even take the patient's wrist and you could elevate it to the same level of the tra as the tragus of their ear. Or you could even take your manometer and level it up at the tragus of the ear because you really care more about what perfusion they're getting to their brain rather than what their heart, lungs, and kidney are seeing, which is why you zero it down at the wrist. Now, again, let me, let me not disappear up my own backside in terms of physiology. My bigger point is if it's reading 70 at the wrist, it may only be 60, even 55 up at the brain. So keep that blood pressure up a little bit higher if you use the wrist. And that's the danger with saying, I've got to get the patient down to 140. If you're measuring it at the wrist, it may be even lower in the brain. Well, that's golden. I mean, even in the emergency department before we've got an art line, if you're reading a map uh, from a blood pressure cuff of, say, 80, that could be really a map of 70 or 65 or 60 
which is a lot lower than we want. Um, so I think the bottom line there is that we should probably not let the map go anything less than about 80 from a blood pressure cuff and certainly from an art line if we can get that. And that's obviously preferable because we all know that uh, even just one low blood pressure in a patient with a brain insult can be a, a total disaster. So what a great pearl. I think that's brilliantly put. If I can add to that, especially if you think you've got a high ICP, because remember your cerebral perfusion pressure is your MAP minus your ICP. So if you drop your MAP and your ICP is high and you don't have a drain in, so you don't know how high it is, your cerebral perfusion pressure could be really, really low. And then that sets off all of those vasodilatory cascades in the brain and all of those cushing waves and the brain injury just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And you need to turn that vicious cycle of ICP into a virtuous cycle. <laughs> Got it. You're a, you're a man of brilliant words. <laughs> All right. So, Peter, the last point you wanted to make was with regards to hyperventilation for a blown pupil. I've seen in the emergency department, the pupil is identified as blown. And then someone goes over to the bag and starts bagging like mad. And uh, then you're kind of scrambling around to figure out how much you're supposed to hyperventilate. Could you give our Emerge listeners a simple way of figuring out how much they should hyperventilate when they do see a herniating brain? Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be the equivalent of my big back, small back. You want to get an end tidal CO2 somewhere between 25 and 30. If you go to 30, that'll be fine because that'll be the same as a PaCO2 of somewhere around 35. There is typically a three to five difference unless you've got loads of dead space, but let's keep this straightforward. Three to five difference where the end tidal CO2 is three to five lower than the arterial partial pressure of CO2, i.e. the PaCO2. So get an end tidal on your intubated patient and then just say to your respiratory therapist, get me an end tidal of 30. There's one other way of doing it. If you don't want to do it with an end tidal CO2, you can look at the minute ventilation on the ventilator. It's at the bottom right of almost all ventilators. If you want to decrease the CO2, you increase the minute ventilation proportionally. And so if you want to decrease the CO2 by 25%, you increase the minute ventilation by 25%. So let's assume that your patient is being adequately ventilated, and that is an assumption, but let's say you've got a blood gas that shows a PaCO2 of 40. You want to take it down to 30. Well, that's a 25% increase in minute ventilation. Look at the bottom right of the ventilator. It says minute ventilation, 10 liters. You turn to your RT and you say, increase the minute ventilation to 12 and a half liters. Either will achieve the same thing. Love it. So two simple ways to know how to hyperventilate a patient with a blown pupil. That's an end tidal CO2 of 30, which will be about five less than your arterial CO2. Yeah, of about 35 of about 35. And the, the other way to do it is look at your minute ventilation and increase it by about 25%. Uh, and that should decrease your, your PCA2 for of about the same amount. And so you need those three things, I would argue, blood pressure, osmotherapy, and CO2 controlled before the patient goes for a CAT scan. 
Until next time, I hope your next ICH patient is packaged up perfectly for Peter. Let's say, Dr. Himmel, that you're working at North York General, a large community hospital that has no neurosurgery service in the hospital or a neuro neuro ICU for that matter, and you need to transfer the patient out to a different hospital for neurosurgery. Can you suggest a checklist for ED docs to ensure a safe transfer? Okay, so I'm going to presuppose we've done all the things we've talked about. So two intravenouses running normal saline and certainly not two-thirds, one-third, or D5W or Renger's lactate. Uh, Temperature managed, blood pressure being controlled at 140 over 80 or so, which means nicardipine or labetalol. And a discussion with the transfer team, discussing that there may be a seizure, so they're going to need benzos available with them, a consideration whether they may need some dilantin or levetiracetam in the event they have a seizure, and a discussion that they're going to have to check the do an ACA check on a reasonably regular basis, a discussion about the use of analgesia, and uh, which means fentanyl, a discussion about the use of propofol with ongoing sedation. So a calm, sedate, well-intubated, two IVs in place, all vital signs looked after appropriate, all things have got to be on hold, maybe a discussion of what to do if the patient suddenly declines dramatically even more. For example, it begins to herniate. What will they do as they transfer? So all the things have got to be discussed and in place and ready to go. And of course, a discussion with the family so they know exactly what the potentials are, both the best side case scenario and the worst case scenario. I think the family's got to really be involved in this situation because sometimes, not sometimes, often the outcome is not wonderful. Just as Walter has said earlier in the podcast, uh, the real gains in these patients are just a meticulous attention to detail on good basic care. And uh, my mentor in all things uh, management of sick patients, Tom Scalia, made the comment I think best elaborates it, which is sick heads don't take a joke. Meaning, uh, yeah, you could uh, rhapsodize about surgery all you want, but if you were ignoring the patient and they became hypotensive or you screwed up the skills of intubation and they became hypoxemic, um, that's what's going to kill them with far more alacrity than whether or not they get stereotactic uh, hematoma removal. So these patients really appreciate meticulous attention to detail, and that is the best thing you could do for them in the eMERGE. Just goes to show you how important those first two or three hours are. Clinical suspicion, clinical examination, acting quickly, having confidence, massive attention to the ABCs, to the physiological details we've talked about. That's where we can give the patient the best opportunity for survival or the best opportunity for good survival. After that, there's diminishing returns. And after that, the care is all about uh, salvage surgery, which is very questionable, but there's a place for it, or rehab. Our, our, our job up front, I mean, the re-bleeding occurs in the first couple hours. The hypoxia is going to kill them is the first couple hours. The uh, high PCO2 that's going to impair cerebral perfusion pressure is up front and early on. Our care in regards to all the factors we've talked about is phenomenally important. That's the most important stuff. The incremental benefits after that in the least next three or four years, I think are going to be pretty slim. So it's, it's what happens up front that really counts. 
All right, folks. Well, there you have it. That's the Himmelweingart Sessions Redux on intracranial bleeding. You've now been armed with a set of take-home points to help you navigate the murky waters of brain bleeds. At the end of the day, those first couple of hours in the ED are key. It's your simple interventions that may save a life. None of the downstream treatments in the ICU or neurosurgery OR really matter unless you optimize the patient in the ED first and prevent that early hematoma expansion. Hopefully, your blood pressure will be a little lower the next time you're intubating a tight head or chatting with a busy surgeon. So don't worry, you've got this. 